The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, correctly understanding the word of truth. Open God's Word this evening to Romans chapter 7, and we're going to continue our study this evening of the spiritual life. We are doing a, sort of a survey, although we are hitting some crucial, important doctrines, of Romans 6, 7, and 8, which is a focus on the spiritual life. This is a very important subject for this time and this age. So before we get started, let's make sure that we're in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, Fellowship with God, filled with the Spirit, ready to study God's Word, focus and concentrate. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we do thank you so much that we do have your Word to come to and to study, and your Holy Spirit who teaches us and fills us. He's the one who makes Scripture clear to us, enables us to understand it, to perceive it, to metabolize it, to make it, to bring it to memory so that we can apply it. He is the one who causes the growth and produces the fruit as we abide in fellowship with you. Now, Father, as we continue our study of these important doctrines related to the spiritual life in Romans 6 through 8, that we can understand these things and see how they relate to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 7. Now here what we see, what Paul is doing in terms of the overview of this section, Romans chapter 6, Paul outlines the foundation for the spiritual life. Back in Romans uh, 3 and 4, Paul outlined justification, that man is justified because he possesses the righteousness of Christ. At the moment of salvation, God the Father imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. There's a logical development, but there it, chronologically it all happens simultaneously. But we are imputed the perfect righteousness of Christ, and God, looking at that perfect righteousness, declares us to be righteous. That's the meaning of justification. It is we are declared to be judicially righteous, and to have because God's righteousness has been satisfied by Christ's work on the cross. That is laid out in Romans, at the end of Romans 3, the Romans 4 is the illustration from the Old Testament that justification is by faith from Abraham. Romans 5 deals with one consequence of that, which is that now we have peace with God, reconciliation, and developing that out leads to the discussion of sanctification in Romans 6. And it's important to understand that there is a shift in subject matter here. Justification is covered. There's a thematic doctrinal development, very logical through Romans. Starts off with the condemnation of Gentiles and Jews in Romans 1 and 2, then justification, then reconciliation, then sanctification. Then it deals with how God is righteous in his dealings with Israel and, and their salvation in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Now, the thing is, if you understand that outline and you get into certain passages in these sections and you start asking questions, well, what does this mean? It may sound like a verse that has to do with phase one salvation. But if it's in Romans 6 and the subject is sanctification, it can't be phase one salvation. Let's hope somehow we survive the evening. With the lightning and thunder, I think I ought to just unplug that and go on battery power in case we have a... Surge, and I don't want to blow the computer or the electronics in here since we don't have... No, we do have a surge protector down there. Okay. We'll listen to the rolling thunder as we go. Romans 6 lays out the foundation, the first five verses, which is the fact that Jesus Christ 
that we are identified with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That is positional truth. Retroactive positional truth means that at the moment we are believers, at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, we are instantly identified with his death in the past. That's why it's retroactive. We're instantly identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. And that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. With that identification with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, we are entered into union with him. And that union can never be severed. Because we have this new position in Christ, just as Christ died, went to the grave, and rose from the grave to live to the glory of God forever and ever, so we too, by analogy, enter into a newness of life, and that is the purpose. We are saved for a purpose. One of the themes that came out this week, again, I emphasized it when we started our Old Testament series, but it's nice to be reminded and have the repetition. We often think, or people often think, they come along and say, what's the purpose of the Bible? You know, and and among covenant, in covenant theology, the overall purpose of the Bible is redemption, God's redemptive work in human history, salvation. So for them... The centerpiece of God's purpose in history is redemption, salvation. What's wrong with that? Salvation is a means, it's not an end. Salvation's a means to an end. The end is the glory of God. Dispensational theology has always said that the ultimate purpose of all the Scripture, the unifying theme, is the glory of God. That's why we are saved. Salvation is a means to an end. It's newness of life. We're saved to this newness of life so that we can advance to spiritual maturity and it's only at spiritual maturity when we're bearing much fruit, according to John 15 in the vine analogy, that by this is the Father glorified that you, what? Bear much fruit. So glorification of God really doesn't occur. I think we can glorify God to a certain smaller degree as we're growing. But the key is, if you want to glorify God in your life, you have to reach spiritual maturity so that you can produce fruit. Now, that was the subject when I went down to this pastor's conference this week. It's really interesting to see how it worked out. Uh, I had two sessions on uh, Tuesday morning at 9 o'clock and Wednesday morning at 9 o'clock. I'm not going to let George Meisinger do that to me again. <laughs> because when I teach at 9 o'clock in the morning, like I do here, I like to go to bed somewhat early the night before, get up. You know, 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning so that I've had enough caffeine and time to exercise, get the blood flowing so that I can uh, focus and concentrate when I get up in the pulpit to teach. But when you get with a bunch of pastors who like to talk <laughs> and you room with one who likes to talk, Tommy was my roommate, and we go way back and just love to argue theology, and I've never seen anybody whose head can hit the pillow and start snoring with, I'm not kidding, within two minutes. So, number one, we set up, we have our last session. We usually get out about nine o'clock. Then everybody decides it's time to eat and go discuss whatever we've been learning during the day. So we go down to find some restaurant. We did find a good Mexican food restaurant. And we weren't close enough to Texas because the hot sauce still wasn't hot. But the other stuff was at least tasty. And we sat around there and closed that place down about 12.30 in the morning. So by the time then we got back to the hotel room, and Tommy and I have a little theological discussion, because see, Tommy's a night person. I forgot that when I told him we could room. He is a, he's a vampire. He just, you know, he comes awake when the sun goes down. And, and I'm a morning person. And I've forgotten that. I should have remembered after all the times that we've done this. And so about 1 o'clock or 1.30, we would finally turn the lights off, which for me is just, I'm brain dead, been brain dead for hours. And then 5.30 would roll around 6 o'clock, and I would be getting up at 6, so I'm operating on a real deficit. I would get up, and I would go down to the workout room, work out, and go over and have my morning protein breakfast at the waffle shop, and come back and put together my... Uh, my presentation, try to think through what I was going to talk on and then get up and, and talk. And my subject was on the uh, spiritual life, a dispens developing a dispensational theology of sanctification. And that was uh, uh, well received. And that first night, well, both, both classes are going to end up on, on uh, uh, will be developed as articles that will be published in the Chaper Theological Journal. 
And it was interesting how God worked to bring it all together because the guy who followed me up, and it wasn't pure coincidence because we had roughly chatted about this at one time about six months ago, was a, the Greek professor at Schaefer Seminary by the name of John Niemöller. Now, I vaguely remember seeing John around campus when I was working on my doctorate at Dallas 12 years ago, and he was on campus. And uh, John's just a brilliant guy in the Greek. He's got an IQ that, just for your frame of reference, he might be a notch or two over Charlie. I'm not sure. He's 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 out there. He's really sharp, and he does, and he's a real detail-oriented guy. And I, this is about the third time I've heard him give a paper, and he's just phenomenal the amount of work that goes into that as a pastor you just don't have the time to do that kind of detail so john was really great he did a paper his paper was on the purpose of first john and mine was on john 15 and one of the major themes in the epistle of first john is abiding and john 15 is abiding in the vine and the big argument between free grace and 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 uh, lordship salvation is whether abiding is believing or fellowship and since I taught that here, what was it, about four months ago, and we went through John 15, I've done more work, and I've discovered that in all the commentaries, they really put this big emphasis on Israel as the, as the vine, the vine image of Israel in the Old Testament. And what I finally put together beat itself on my brain long enough, I began to realize that what was happening was most of these commentators are Reformed theologians there into covenant theology, and what they were doing, and remember this, covenant theology replaces Israel with the church. They don't see a distinctive break with the church in the church age as a new entity founded by the baptism of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. And that's foundational because that means that the Holy Spirit is one, if not the most, the unique factor of the church age spiritual life. So they go back and see the precedent for the, for the church age spiritual life in Israel. And they take all these vine analogies applying to Israel in the Old Testament, which they interpret as indicating believer versus unbeliever in Israel, and they flip that over and make the vine analogy, the branches that don't bear fruit are unbelievers, and the branches that bear fruit are believers. So you have believer versus unbeliever in the vine analogy. Well, it, didn't, it dawned on me as I kept studying this that what happens is even if you're dispensational, and you go and you read the commentaries, and 98% of the commentaries are written by people who are from a replacement theology background, that you may see their conclusions, but you don't realize that behind their, what they're saying is this assumption that the vine in the Old Testament is the interpretive framework for understanding the vine in John 15. But if you're doing that, you're confusing Israel with the church. And I found three or four commentaries where the guys really made that clear. Most of them don't make it clear, so you don't realize that's what you're doing. And you're buying into an interpretation as a dispensationalist that's inconsistent with your, your dispensational view of a break between Israel and the church. And as I developed that, I saw the light go on on at least one person whose comment was, well, I'm gradually moving in your direction. So that was good to hear. And then... Um, but I did that, and John backed it up by going into the whole purpose of abiding in First John, that that was fellowship also, and had some really good insights into First John 1 and the importance of confession, and that just built on everything I taught the first hour. And we were, and I was relating it to dispensationalism, and Charlie came in on Tuesday night and started teaching on dispensationalism. So everything dovetailed together, and it was a great conference, and there was a lot of stuff that was provided in those papers that you just... You know, I was very disappointed in the turnout. There were only about maybe 12 or 15 pastors there. There were about 30, 35 in attendance. Some were missionaries like Jody Brown, who incidentally is going into Cuba on Monday, so you all need to remember that in prayer. He and a friend of mine, Gene Brown, are going in as an exploratory uh, mission trip, and so we need to pray for them. But... I was disappointed because pastors need to hear this kind of information where you get people like Charlie, you get other people like John Nemola, Glenn Carnegie, who's really specialized in archaeology, who come in and give information that you can't find anywhere else. And they've spent hours and hours and hours developing this kind of information, and you just need to hear it. I mean, I found out from Glenn Carnegie, one of the fascinating things related to the Old Testament was that the Kathleen Kenyon, who was the major archaeologist back, in, I think, in the 50s, who went in and did the dig at Jericho and came up and said, you know, there's no level there that would equate to Joshua. There's no evidence that 
that anything in the Bible ever happened at, at Jericho, that she goes in with a presupposition like most liberals, and, and uh, another archaeologist in just a past few years uncovered a couple of large storage warehouses in Jerusalem where, which were packed with pottery that, Ka- that Kathleen Kenyon had found in Jericho that didn't fit her notion of what should be there. And so she shoved it off into a warehouse and never reported in her findings. I mean, that's the kind of dishonesty that's out there. And then you go and you evaluate that stuff and you realize you have the evidence that, that uh, of the, the right layers are there for, for, uh, to document what, what the Bible says happened at Jericho. And Glenn was working on a, on a dig at a place that's uh, a mile north of what's considered to be the the mound at, called Etel, which is where everybody thinks uh, AI is located, and it's not. They can't document anything there. They keep looking in the wrong place and say, well, we can't prove the Bible. Well, it's because they're looking in the wrong place. And Glenn was on this dig, and they discovered AI just a mile north, and they've got everything there, all the documented evidence and whatever, but because it doesn't fit the liberal agenda, the, the archaeologist who discovered this and has all the documentation can't get published. This is the kind of opposition that's out there in the scholarly world. I mean, it's the angelic conflict. Uh, there are presuppositions in archaeology that are governed by liberal assumptions that have been there since the mid-19th century that are sacred cows that can't be challenged. And they continue to affect dating. They continue to affect interpretation of finds today that, that make, make it almost impossible to come up with stuff that truly does verify and substantiate what the Bible Bible says. So those were just some of the things that were covered in the conference, and it was quite uh, quite good to go to something like that and to hear that and hear all the different things that were there and be challenged by them. But this is the issue in the spiritual life that we're facing, is that that in history what happened is in the early church, Here's the cross. You have the first century, down through, we'll mark it off here, down through 100, where you have the apostles are still alive, so you have clear truth. It's amazing how rapidly clarity of truth disappeared in the, among what's called the apostolic fathers, which are those who immediately succeeded the apostles. Some of them, like Polycarp, were disciples of the apostle John. But you read their writings and they get very vague and very fuzzy. But there's been some work by several scholars showing that all of the dispensational themes are present at least at a naive form. By naive, I mean they haven't really been developed out in a deep analytical way. They're very generalized statements. But it's clear that they still are holding to a literal interpretation of Scripture a plain, literal interpretation of the words, and to a distinction between Israel and the church. But about 250 A.D., you have a, a man named Origen, who's a great scholar for some reasons, and he's horrible for other reasons, Origen. And Origen comes along, and he introduces allegorical interpretation into the church. And with allegorical interpretation, you shift from premillennialism, which dominated the early church fathers, which is consistent with a literal interpretation and a distinction between Israel and the church. And with allegorical interpretation, you lose the distinction between Israel and the church, and you shift to amillennialism. There's no true literal thousand-year rule and reign of Christ in the future. We are living in a spiritualized kingdom now. Amillennial means A, the alpha suffix means no millennium, no literal millennium. And this dominates down to 1517 when the Reformation comes in. Now, during this whole period, we'll just call this replacement theology. That's a broader term than covenant theology. Covenant theology specifically applies to the Reformed Presbyterian branch. Now, replacement theology just means that Israel is now replaced by the church so that all of the promises 
that God made to Israel in the Old Testament have been abrogated and forfeited, even though at that time when God gave them, He meant them literally, that they would literally have the land bordered by the river of Egypt, the river Euphrates, the, the great river in Syria in the north, and that they would literally occupy that land. But because Israel failed and they crucified the Messiah, they are taken out and, and no longer God's people. They're replaced by the church. And now these literal promises are to be applied to the church figuratively. Okay, They become our spiritually. And that's allegorical interpretation. And since the law is the means of sanctification for Israel, which I think is, is, is true in some sense. I don't think that's really true, but that's their interpretation. Then, since the church replaces Israel, the law becomes minus the ceremonial law, because they would recognize that was fulfilled by Christ on the cross. The law becomes the model for sanctification in the church. And that's where Roman Catholicism ends. That's the basis for ritualism. It's fundamentally this concept that it is the law, it is morality to bring it down to its core issue. It is morality that is how you, you grow spiritually, how you gain approbation with God. What happens in the Reformation with Martin Luther's call to sola scriptura and justification by faith alone is they correct the problem as it relates to justification. Man cannot be justified by morality and ritual because obviously he, he can't ever be good enough in order to gain approval by God. But the great Reformation faiths, Lutheranism, the Reformed branch, Calvinism, whether that's expressed as Congregationalism, a Reformed Baptist, uh, Presbyterian theology, uh, it heavily influenced Anglican theology in the 1600s and 1700s. Whether you're talking about Lutheran or Reformed or Wesleyan Methodism, which comes out of the Anglican Church in the 1700s, whether you're talking, these are your three main branches up to roughly 1800 of Christianity plus the Baptist. They all hold, you get the Anabaptists in there, they all hold to replacement theology. They have a literal interpretation as far as uh, salvation goes, but when it comes to prophecy, it goes allegorical because of this. The, they, they see this continuity between Israel and the church, and there's not a break, and the church simply replaces Israel, and everything else comes so that Israel is seen as the precedent for the church age spiritual life. Now, that's important to understand to get our bearings on what's happening historically. And then what happened in the middle of the 19th century, just somewhere around the 1850s, is suddenly you get a return emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Historically, I remember when I took a graduate a doctoral course under, under Dr. Leitner on pneumatology at Dallas Seminary, we were required to read what was, what's considered to be the two greatest books, two greatest theologies ever written on the Holy Spirit. One's written in the 1600s by John Owens, who was Oliver Cromwell's chaplain, very famous uh, Puritan theologian his work on the Holy Spirit, and then Abraham Kuyper, who was one of these Renaissance politician, theologian, statesman in, in the Netherlands in the late 1800s. He was the prime minister of the Netherlands. He was also a, one of the chief theologians in the Dutch Reformed Church, and he wrote a work on the work of the Holy Spirit. You know what they don't mention? I think Kuyper mentions the term, but he never defines, describes, or discusses it, and that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They don't talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, and the indwelling of the Spirit. They are just sort of mentioned, but they're never analyzed and developed. Well, how can you have a unique spiritual life in the church age? In fact, Kuyper even says baptism of the Holy Spirit goes back into the Old Testament. It's just always been there. Boom, that's it. End of discussion. See, there's no distinction between Israel and the church. And it's not until you have the, the influence of Darby, John Nelson Darby, and dispensational theology starting in the late 1830s where you see a break that it is at the day of Pentecost, right 50 days after Passover, 
with the advent of God the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit that you set apart the unique church age as distinct because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit because every believer is personally indwelt by the Holy Spirit and can be filled by the Holy Spirit. And in dispensationalism, you start seeing a distinction made between the baptism, the filling, and the indwelling. But there's other things going on in the middle of the 1800s. You have the rise of what's called holiness theology, the deeper life, higher life movement, Keswick theology, all these things are very similar. And we've talked about this in the spiritual life, that their view of the spiritual life fundamentally is that there's two stages. At the cross, you get saving grace. And sometime after the cross, it can be the next day, five years later, ten years later, you have dedication, the mild form as you walk the aisle, you dedicate your life to Christ. Yield, brother, yield. Or you get, at the most extreme form, a baptism of the Holy Spirit evidenced by speaking in tongues. That's Pentecostalism. But it's two, no matter how you cut it, it's two-step Christianity. You get some grace here and you get a second work here. And then, boom, that bumps you up to a higher plane where you can grow. And that is the that comes in in the end of the 19th century. But what they're emphasizing here that hasn't been emphasized is the role of the Holy Spirit in the church age and that the spiritual life of the church age is now fundamentally related to the Holy Spirit and they're making a distinction and breaking from that old law to one degree or another. The only ones who are consistently developing that are dispensationalists. Schofield, Chafer, and, and that early dispensational crowd are the ones that are developing this as distinct. But they're using vocabulary that comes out of that higher life movement, so there's still some fuzziness there. But we've clarified that to one degree or another as we come along. But all of this we must understand if we're going to understand what Paul is saying here about the law in Romans 7. Now, last time, in Romans 7, 1 through 6, we saw that Paul uses the analogy of, of the death of a spouse as breaking the legal bondage, the legal requirement of a, of a marriage contract to illustrate what happens at salvation. You're under law when you're alive, but once a death occurs, as in a marriage, you're married. When spouse dies, you're no longer under obligation to the law. You're free to remarry. What happens in the, with, the, with the believer is the believer is born, in some sense, married to the law. But it's not the law that dies. It's the believer that dies in Christ. So that divorces the believer from the law. Now, after having said that, and a few things that Paul said about the law in Romans chapter 6, it would be easy to infer that, Paul, are you saying that the law is really bad? So Paul has to correct this false inference in verse 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. Meganoid a strong no. Not at all. On the contrary, I would not have known I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. Now, a couple of things we have to notice in terms of what's going to happen starting in verse seven through the end of this chapter. Paul shifts to a first-person singular pronoun. That raises an important hermeneutical question. Is Paul talking about his own personal autobiography here, or is Paul just using I as a sense of a reference to what is common to all people? The second thing that we have to note is that the verb tenses in verses 7 through 12 either are imperfect, aorist, or perfect tenses, which are all past tenses, and when you get down to verse 13, all of a sudden, the verb tenses began to shift to present tenses. So what this means is starting in verse 13 and following to the end of the chapter, he is talking about the experience, present tense, of a Christian. But the struggle in Romans 7 is between the, believe, the regenerate believer who has a new nature versus his sin nature. There's no mention of the Holy Spirit here. Now, there is the foreshadowing of the Holy Spirit, which we saw given in verse 6. 
But starting in verse 7 down to the end of the chapter, there's no mention of the Holy Spirit. Now, we've studied Galatians 5, Galatians 5.16, where Paul says, Walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the works of the flesh. Strong statement, ume, plus a subjunctive in the Greek, which should be translated, Walk by means of the Spirit, and it will be impossible for you to bring to completion the lust of the flesh. The conflict in Galatians 5 is a conflict between the sin nature versus the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not mentioned in Romans 7. The conflict in Romans 7, which we must understand, is between the believer's sin nature and his new nature. But what we see is that because there's no mention of the Holy Spirit, there is nothing but failure and frustration when the attempt is to try to live a moral life to please God, and the result is always going to be the domination of the sin nature. The only solution comes in when Paul introduces the Spirit beginning in chapter 8. So that's the flow. He's going to start in 7 through 12 with what I think is pre-conversion examples. Whether this is his personal autobiography, which I... There's some indication, some suggestion here that I question it a little bit. It may be, or whether he's just talking generally about um, what would be experienced by anyone in pre-conversion, using himself roughly, generally as an example I think it's more something along those lines, but we'll get into that in just a minute. He raises the question, as he does through this whole section, building his argument logically through the use of rhetorical questions. Six one, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? And then he says no to that and demonstrates why based on positional truth. Then you come to verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under... Law, but under grace, may it never be. And then he develops that, that we are either in bondage to the law, I mean bondage to the sin nature prior to salvation, or after salvation we are now slaves to Christ, but you are really enslaved to whomever you're serving. So if you're a believer and you're serving your sin nature, you've been freed from that sin nature, but you're voluntarily, volitionally putting yourself back into bondage, and you need to realize that bondage has been broken. So in verse verse 1 of chapter 7, he comes back to this issue of law to explain the relationship of law to the believer. And he has to deal with one objection here in verse 7 that possibly somebody might get the idea, well, the law is just basically sinful. So he says, no, it is not that the law is sinful. It is that the law reveals sin. Without the law, it's not clear trying to think of a good analogy to express this. This may not be the best, but we all know that there are people who just don't like to go to doctors. You know there's something wrong with you. You know that you've been losing weight. You know that you haven't felt well, but you don't want to go to the doctor. You know you're sick. You may even know you're terminal, but you don't want to go to the doctor. Going to the doctor and having the test run, which tells you that you have terminal cancer, doesn't give you terminal cancer. It just clarifies what you already had. But you knew you already had something. That's the background here. Paul is saying without the law, you're still a sinner. It may not be as clear, it may not be as precise, but it's still there. He's already said that the Gentiles, back in chapter 2, Gentiles have an internal sense, they have a conscience. And just because they have a conscience, they know that there's right and wrong. Now, their values may be screwed up, but they know they're absolutes. And because they know they're absolutes, they know that they fail and that they're sinners. So there's some sense there that even Galatians, with, even Gentiles without the Mosaic Law, know they are violating the standard of God, even though it's in a more vague sense. But the Jew has the law, has the Mosaic Law, and it is when it is brought into the open, into the spotlight of the, of the law, that it is revealed in all of its hideousness as a violation of the standard and righteousness of God. So that's, that's the background here. That's really what he's arguing is the law is not sinful. You don't shoot the messenger because he brings a bad message. It's not his fault. He's just revealing the bad message. And that's what the law is. It is a revealer of sin. Now, Christians through the ages have always had problems with the law, as I've explained in the diagram we just looked at. Starting in about the second, late second, early third century A.D., the church just went right back under the law as a system of sanctification. 
And we have to understand just what our relationship is to the law and what all of this means. So the first thing we have to understand here is just a definition of the word law, namas in the Greek, in this section, can refer to general law, N-O-M-O-S. Namas can just refer to general absolutes, general law, any legal system, or it can refer specifically to the Mosaic Law. And Paul uses it both ways, and sometimes he uses it both ways in the same section. Now, here I think it is clear that he is talking about specifically about the Mosaic Law because the example that he quotes in the second half of verse 7 is from the Tenth Commandment, which is a prohibition of covetousness. So from that we know that he is specifically talking about the Mosaic Law in this particular chapter. Now, this means that we have to understand some things about the Mosaic Law. So, this is point two. The Mosaic Law was a particular covenant which God made with Israel. Now, what exactly is a covenant? The best term that we can use in English to bring it over is a contract. From the day that Adam fell and they started having children and they started having to interact with one another on the basis of trade, on the basis of giving anything or making any kind of money, developing any sort of a financial system, which within at least two generations would have developed, they had to come back to the concept of contract. Contract is fundamental to all relationship, economics, business, commerce, trade, everything runs on a contract basis. So as soon as man, fallen man, got into a, a situation where they had to enter into some agreement and establish a basis of trust, there's this sense of, okay, how are we going to establish this? Now, God had already dealt with man on a certain basis, so that becomes the, the model, that becomes the precedent for human contracts. Man didn't invent the contract, and then God came along and said, okay, I'm going to use your, your form that you came up with to, to express my relationship with you. Human contracts are a reflection of God's original contract with man. And we've studied that in the Old Testament series. We looked at Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where God said, I will let us create man in our image and according to our likeness. We saw that those terms in the Hebrew image and likeness are key terms found in a later secular treaty form, a secular contract form called the suzerain vassal treaty form. And that that becomes a model pattern, a literary form that much of the Pentateuch, including Deuteronomy, the Book of the Covenant, and Exodus, are all modeled after that suzerain vassal treaty form. They are all uh, a reflection of that. Now, think about a contract. A contract expresses certain stipulations. It, it expresses who the parties to the contract are, and it expresses the, the requirements and stipulations of the contract. You go down and you want to buy a car and you want to take out a, a, uh, a loan, you have to sign a contract for that loan. It states that the, the contract is between you and the financial institution, and those are specifically named. Certain stipulations are made that you will make a certain dollar payment by the 10th or 12th of the month every single month. And these are the lexical terms of the contract. And it's spelled out, and everybody understands how to interpret that contract, that it's interpreted literally. In fact, at the end of many contracts today, you'll even see a, see a list attached in an appendix of all the terms with their definitions so that nothing is left to some sort of fuzzy interpretive scheme. Now, you can't come along three years later and, and reinterpret that contract metaphorically or allegorically and say, well, you know, when it says pay at the first of the month, that what you really meant by month was, was year. <laughs> so I'll just pay it first of every year. Well, see, that's what the covenant theologians, that's what the Amills and the historical pre-mills and all these other people are doing is they're, they're coming along after the cross and they're going back and they're changing the terms of the contract. But the contract is made between God and Abraham or between God and Israel with the Mosaic Covenant. And it has certain terms and certain stipulations, and those must be interpreted the same way throughout all of history. You can't go back and after the contract's in place and say, well, gee, I'm just going to make my house payment once a year. And when it says that the uh, 
such and such mortgage company is the party of the first part, that really means my mother. I mean, that, that's exactly the kind of interpretive scheme that they're, they're, that they're following. It means what it means. Now, when you come to the Mosaic Law, there are precise terms and precise language in the Mosaic Covenant. It is, it is not a permanent covenant, an everlasting covenant, like the Abrahamic Covenant is. It is seen as a, new, as a temporary covenant, and that was even understood in the Old Testament when you come to passages like Jeremiah 31 which explained the new covenant, prophesied that there will be a new covenant. The point is that the old covenant is viewed as temporary and that's why, and, and, and not complete. That's why it must be replaced by a new covenant. So the Mosaic Law, when you apply your interpretation to it, you see that it's a contract between God, who is the party of the first part, and the nation Israel, the physical progeny of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who were brought out of Israel as a redeemed nation, they are the party of the second part. So you can't come along after the cross and say, well, you know, because the Jews rejected and we're going to change the terms of the contract and Israel doesn't mean Israel anymore, it means the church. It just doesn't work. And that's exactly what has happened in the way that most people want to treat the law. First time, I grew up understanding that, and I pastored my first church, and I think about the third or fourth week I was there, I made some probably sarcastic, derogatory remark about people who thought that the Ten Commandments were still in effect today, and half the church revolted against me. They had never heard that. I was amazed. You know, the Ten Commandments do not establish the the ethical absolutes that are expressed there. It was murder. Murder was murder for... Uh, about 1,500 years before God ever encoded that in the Mosaic Law. It was murder from the time of Cain. It was prohibited in the Noahic Covenant, which incidentally, as Charlie pointed out when he was here, he covered that same, some of those same subjects for us last night, that when you look at a rainbow, this is somewhat an analog of the rainbow that you see around the throne of God associated with the um, Shekinah glory. You see that in Ezekiel and in in Isaiah's vision, you see it again in Revelation. And that is the sign of the Noahic Covenant. So as long as you see a rainbow in the sky, and I always like to listen to Charlie explain it meteorologically because there's so many interesting facets there that raindrops have to be a certain weight, a certain density, and they can't be falling. They have to be stable. So that means you have to have a wind updraft in order to keep them somewhat level so you can create a, a prism. They have to be large enough to create a prism of light you don't, can't have any of those dynamics in a pre-flood environment, so it can only come about in a post-flood environment. So God then creates this meteorological, whole meteorological system as a way of expressing his, an analog to his glory in the rainbow. And the rainbow is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, I mean of the Mosaic, uh, Noahic covenant, so that every time you see the rainbow, you're reminded of two things. You know what those two things are? You, every time you see a rainbow, you should think, first of all, this signifies that God has promised that he will never again destroy the human race by water. It's also a sign that God has delegated to the human race, whether they're perfect or imperfectly apply it, the right and responsibility to execute murderers. That's what you should think of every time you see a rainbow. You should think of those two things, because that's what God stated in the Noahic Covenant. He stated, I'm going to put my bow as a sign of this covenant that I will never destroy the earth again by water. And I am delegating to you that man who sheds man's blood, man by man shall have his blood shed. So those two things are critical features of that covenant. As long as the rainbow's there, that contract is still in effect. It hasn't changed. The terms haven't changed. It's still between God, party of the first part, and the whole human race, party of the second part. And the stipulations are, I won't destroy the earth again, and you need to execute murderers. Capital punishment. Of course, we don't live in an age when our legislators want to go with that. They're so afraid they'll make a mistake that God must have been wrong. But we won't go there. So Christians in the church age have always had problems with the law. The first basic problem that we've had is that they want to, there are those who want to make law the basis for salvation. 
want to make law the basis for salvation. But this is really absurd. Number one, of course, we all understand the fact that man is a sinner and there is no way that man, by simply obeying a legal system, an external ethical code, can gain the righteous standard of God or meet the absolute perfection of God. But it also doesn't make sense if you just look at the Old Testament. Israel as a nation represents the individual in the church age. ...from the Greek word tupas, meaning example. So we'll draw this line here, which represents the chronological flow in the life of the nation Israel. Above the line, we're going to put the events that relate to the nation Israel. Below the line, we're going to represent... The, event, the events that happened to the individual Christian in the church age. Now, everything that happens above the line to the nation Israel does not mean that every individual in Israel is saved, but that what happens to the nation as a whole is to illustrate for us in the church age what takes place in the individual life of the believer. So it starts off with Abraham where we have the call of Abraham and God's selection or election of Abraham. Then you come down to the Exodus period and you have the Passover, which represents the redemption of the nation. They are purchased by the shed blood, which illustrates the spiritual substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. They applied the blood on the doorpost in the shape of a cross and the angel of death passed over and they are redeemed as a nation. So they are brought out from slavery, which is a type of our slavery to sin, and brought into freedom. Then they go through the Red Sea. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 3 says that they are identified... English uses the word baptized, the significance of which is identification. They're identified with Moses in the sea. That is an analog, analogous to what happens when the believer is identified with Christ through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So just as Abraham is called, elected, that's where they get their calling and election, then you have redemption, you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You also have, I left this one out, Adoption. The adoption of the nation. Israel is my firstborn, Exodus chapter 19. So you have redemption, adoption, the baptism into the Red Sea, and then what happens? The nation is viewed as already saved here. This is the type of the redemption. So salvation for Israel occurs at the Exodus. Have they had the law yet? No. They're not given the law until they're redeemed. The law is not how the nation became purchased out from the slavery of Egypt. It is what they are given as a code of conduct after they are redeemed. So even in the structure of the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law wasn't the way Israel got redeemed, not individually but corporately. It was subsequent to that to provide the, the ethical system, the code of conduct that God expected for Israel as a kingdom of priests. Now, Peter picks up that same terminology from Exodus 19, 1-3, in First Peter and quotes it and applies it to the church that we are a unique kingdom of priests. We are a royal priesthood, every single believer. That's why we have the Word of God. That is our code of conduct in the New Testament church age. We have, we have the New Testament to replace that. So in, if you follow this across the top, you have the call, election, redemption, adoption, baptism, and then the giving of an ethical system, the code of conduct, the protocol plan of God for Israel and the church age. Now you come down below the line how this mirrors what goes on in the individual life of a believer. We're called and elect in eternity past and related to the divine decrees. Then we trust Christ, then Christ goes to the cross where he purchases our redemption and at the point of salvation that is applied to us when we are adopted into the royal family of God and we become sons of God and heirs of God. At that same instant, we are baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit, and then, and only then, does the New Testament make sense as God's uh, 
sanctification plan for the believer. So the law, the Mosaic law, is analogous to an overt ethical system for a redeemed nation, but it is replaced by the New Testament because you have a, a new entity called into being the church. And the precedent for the church age sanctification isn't the Mosaic law, because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. That's what makes the difference. They could only go so far. What you have in the New Testament, the pre- what comes in between is the hypostatic union where Jesus Christ demonstrates the spiritual life of the church age by living, walking by means of God the Holy Spirit, filled by means of God the Holy Spirit, and that establishes the precedent for the church age spiritual life. Now, the problem that the church has had, first of all, they think the law is the basis for salvation, but the New Testament clarifies that the purpose of the law was never for salvation. Romans 3.20 states, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The purpose of the law was not to get people saved, but to show they couldn't save themselves. They couldn't live up to the standard. Romans 5.20, Paul says, and the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Law came in to reveal to man in a more precise way his sinfulness and failure to, to, to meet up with the absolute standard of God. 1 Timothy 1.8 But we know that the law is good, so it has a good uh, feature to it if one uses it lawfully. That means that even if unbelievers use it, they can have a benefit from it, but it's not a spiritual benefit. And the second problem that people have with the law is not just that they make the law the basis for salvation, but they make it the basis for sanctification. They make it the basis for the spiritual life. This is the problem of legalism, and Paul addresses this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, a verse I think people forget to pay attention to. The problem with the Galatians where they had Judaizers, these were Jews who were coming along, they claimed to be Christians, And they said that if you want to experience everything that God has for you, sounds like a modern Pentecostal, if you want to have all that God has for you, then you didn't get it all from the Apostle Paul. Now, he told you about salvation, that's good, but if you really want the full Christian life, if you really want the full blessing of God, then you need to be circumcised and come in under the Abrahamic covenant and, and, and live the Mosaic law. That's how you become sanctified. So Paul has to really chew them out. And he straightens them out about justification in Galatians 2. And then starting in Galatians 3, he shifts to the spiritual life and he says, Are you so foolish, having begun by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to be matured by the flesh, by the sin nature? And then he's going to use that when he comes into Galatians chapter 5, showing that living by the flesh and living by the law become parallel concepts because we have been freed from the law and from the sin nature. So that emphasizes that the law is not a basis for living the spiritual life and and sanctification. It is merely to reveal man's sinfulness and the law has been fulfilled, Romans says, Christ is the end of the law. Now the problem is that we don't understand the sin nature. The sin nature is driven by lust patterns. Now, this is the meaning of the word covetousness when we get down to the second part of verse 7. Paul says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. Now, he doesn't mean he wouldn't have known he was a sinner. There's a general sense of that. But to understand it precisely, he uses the word here, uh, gnosko, which is to learn something from studying. That's the word for know in this first sentence. To know it as a result of study. He would not have known sin explicitly and, and, and fully except through the law which would have revealed it. For I would not have known about coveting. And the word there is the same word we have for lust over in Galatians 5 that the lust of the flesh wars against the spirit. It's epithemia. It's not just covetousness. It is lust pattern. This is what drives. This is the mental attitude sin of lust whether it's power lust approbation lust, material lust, sex lust, whatever it is that drives and motivates the sin nature. I would not have known about coveting lust if the law had not said you can't lust. 
So it is the clarity of the law that brings sin out in all of its full fullness. Now we have a lust pattern in the sin nature and that's the motivation. Remember the sin nature produces in two areas. It has an area of strength that produces human good. This is morality. When you look at Galatians 5.16, and we must always compare it when we get into this section of Romans, there's so many parallels here between this and Galatians 5, which we went through in detail on Sunday morning, where it says, when you walk, whether you have the imperative, walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now that is, a, in, in the Greek, it's a double negative, ume, which is the strongest negative you can have. In English, if you use a double negative, it cancels each other out and it's a positive. But in Greek, you can compound your negatives and it just intensifies the negative meaning. When you use that with a subjunctive mood verb, it is the strongest statement of denial possible. So what Paul is saying in Galatians 5:16 is, walk by means of the Spirit and it will be impossible for you to bring to completion, teleao, the lust, the epithemia of the flesh. Well, what does that tell you? That tells you that you can't even commit a sin of ignorance because you've brought lust to completion even if you weren't aware of it. You can't even commit a sin of ignorance unless first you stop walking by the Spirit. Those are those absolutes. You're either walking or you're not walking. And when you sin, whether it's a sin of ignorance or a sin of cognizance, when you sin, you have already stopped walking and you're out of fellowship. This was one of the points I brought out in John 15 and the fruit bearing and abiding. If abiding in Christ is the sole and necessary condition for producing fruit, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And if walking by the Spirit is the sole and necessary condition to produce fruit in Galatians 5, then fellowship with Christ, abiding in Christ, is tantamount to walking by means of the Spirit, and it's walking by the Spirit that we maintain fellowship with Christ. Now what happens is the instant we decide to sin, we stop walking by the Spirit, and that fellowship is broken, and we have to have some kind of recovery. But what happens is we usually go on some kind of guilt trip and start operating on morality. I'm going to impress God with how good I really am. And that's human good, and that's exactly what the Galatians were doing. They're following the law, and it's nothing but doing the right thing. It's reducing spirituality to morality. The opposite end of the, of the spectrum is personal sins, which are produced by the area of weakness, and the lust pattern produces trends. Now, pay attention, because I'm adding something new. We have trends towards our old friends, lasciviousness on one end and legalism on the other, but I'm developing some new concepts. We have a trend towards asceticism and legalism, which is the underlying mental attitude sin. Which is the underlying mental attitude sin, asceticism and legalism. Asceticism is the idea that I can give up something that will impress God because he knows I mean business. I'm sincere. Legalism is the idea that if I find an external code that that too will gain God's approbation. In the intellectual realm, that is pure rationalism or empiricism. Because what you're doing is you're establishing an external code that, that, of logic as the ultimate standard of truth. And that flows from the sin nature. So you have this one trend towards asceticism and, and legalism, and on the intellectual, philosophical side, that's going to be manifested as rationalism and legalism, and that will always, uh, uh, a rationalism and the excessive use of logic and, in the sense that man on his own can reach truth apart from God. I'm not saying that reason and logic aren't important. They're given to us, but they have to be used under the authority of God and not independently. And when they're used as, a tr- as part of this trend, they're used independently from God. Now, the other trend is towards licentiousness and li- lasciviousness and antinomianism. And in the intellectual realm, this is just the opposite. It's going to be expressed as irrationalism, subjectivism, emotionalism, and mysticism. Because what happens in, in irrationalism and mysticism, you throw off all boundaries. It does, and, and the only authority is whatever I feel like doing. So in the intellectual realm, uh, uh, irrationalism and mysticism are tantamount to the overt sins that are expressed as licentiousness, lasciviousness, and antinomianism. Uh, legalism and asceticism always goes to moral degeneracy like the Pharisees 
and antinomianism and lasciviousness always are expressed in an immoral degeneracy like the Corinthians. So that expresses the sin nature problem. So the law can't be the basis of sanctification because that's just an expression of the legalistic trend of the sin nature. Now that's as far as we're going to get this evening, just setting up what that verse means and the relationship of law there and understanding that we've been broken from the law and law reveals sin. Now that we've done that, we can probably work our way through the rest of the passage fairly rapidly, which we will do next Wednesday night. So, so we will do that then, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time together, for the fact that you have given us a spiritual life that is unique in all of history. It's energized by God the Holy Spirit, that the life that you expect of us is one that is divinely provided, divinely enabled, and divinely produced through God the Holy Spirit. Now, Father, as we go from here, we pray that you would help us to remember the things we've learned, to be challenged by them, to advance to spiritual maturity. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.